0: Well, last week, as you recall, we talked about how you are not your own, how I am not my own, we are not our own, and that that biblical truth is foundational to understanding all of life, but also understanding marriage. We talked about 1 Corinthians 6, about how both God and creation owns us, but more importantly, in recreation, has purchased us, that we're not our own. We've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. And that actually has great implications for how you prepare for marriage, great implications for how you enter into marriage, great implications for how you spend each day in marriage, just that truth that, okay, my my body, my time, my energy, my emotions, my thoughts, my relationships, my possessions, none of that is ultimately mine. They're given to me by God to be stewarded, to be used with his glory in mind, with the good of others in mind. So this week, we're just going to get more specific and talk about how our marriage is not our own, that this is something that we didn't invent or create, because we're all in danger, I think, firstly, of thinking way too highly of marriage, that actually is a danger, of making it an end of itself, making it a kind of idol, making it something that is just a vehicle to serve us, to make us feel a certain way which always sets us up to disdain it. Disdaining marriage usually begins with over-inflating it, thinking this is going to be something that's going to deliver the goods to me. This is going to be something that in and of itself is going to make me deeply happy and fulfilled. It's going to satisfy, we'll use the word, all of my needs. And it doesn't take long to realize that's actually not what the Lord built it for. Like if I was to give you a Ferrari, we'll just imagine this and say, hey, go, this is just a gift, enjoy it, use it wisely. And then you were to take it out to the beach and go, you know what, I think I want to use it like a submarine. So you just drive it off up here into the ocean, thinking this is some kind of James Bond film. What are you going to find very quickly about that Ferrari? It's not a submarine. And it'll last five seconds underwater. And then that half a million dollar vehicle will be worth zero. Zero. And often that's, if we misunderstand the gifts that God gives us, we'll take a perfectly good gift and run it underwater. And then we'll look at it and go, what's wrong with it? To which God says, well, nothing's wrong with it. It's what you're using it to do. We can do that with marriage. God goes, okay, here's this gift. Here's this expensive, lovely, wondrous thing for you to enjoy and use for a particular purpose. And if we go, you know what, I think I'll use it this way. And all of a sudden we find it just isn't working. And then we go, well, the problem is marriage. And the Lord's like, no, the the problem is, is what you're using it to do. And that's why this session is here. So that we can think carefully, biblically, about what God designed marriage to be. What it's fundamentally about. So that we would keep it in perspective. Rightly enjoying what God has given and not drive it into the ground. All the while staring at it as if what's wrong with it. And so I think that's a good reason to go to Genesis 2 where it sort of started. Where God put marriage onto the stage of creation. Genesis 2 verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in that place And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So the first principle I want us to take from this passage is that marriage is God's idea you'll see that in your notes there. Marriage is God's idea. It didn't arise from the thoughts of mankind. Adam didn't come up with this. The creatures didn't come up with this. The creator came up with this. We come up with the abuse of marriage. We come up with all the different mistreatments of marriage. But we didn't actually come up with the beauty of marriage, the goodness of marriage, the reality even of marriage. Like every other created thing, God decided upon it in his mind, which is amazing. Just he came up with this. And he did it when he saw or he observed something there in verse 18. It's not good for man to be alone. That's the observation God's going to see. It's not good for man to be alone. And I will say that most marriage books will either be good or not good based on how they interpret that phrase. And I'm talking about Christian marriage books. This is where the misunderstanding of marriage in many Christian books actually begins and in thinking among many believers is what God's actually observing there. He's not talking about some oversight in his work because remember, every day he creates and what does he observe at the end of every day? It was what? It was good. It was good. It was good. So this isn't an oversight but I think a purposeful decision to leave something out to leave a piece missing for the time being so that Adam and all the rest of us would notice, so that all of us would see, okay, there's something God is doing that he's planned on that he wants us to see. And I think he's wanting to make the point that Adam in his alone state is not good. That's not what God is going to see in Adam and go, okay, that's the way I want it. There's something he's going to be if he's alone, that isn't what God wants, or at least there's something he's going to become if he's left alone that isn't good. What he isn't seeing is loneliness. That's the mistake that most interpretations of this passage make, that God's looking at Adam and seeing, oh, he's lonely, or he's bored, or he's sexually frustrated, or the laundry's piling up. There's no laundry at this point. Or he's eating too much fried food. There's no fried food. In other words, he's not looking at some lonely, bored, sexually frustrated person and going, okay, that's not good. I would say those are all man-centered explanations of the problem, which is how most people interpret the Bible, in a humanistic way, in a human-centered way, as if the thing that God is seeing that he's concerned about is merely about man-centered need rather than his own purpose. So when he says it's not good for man to be alone, what's he talking about? I think to answer that question, we need to go back to why God created Adam to begin with and the image of God and man, which is that point two under marriage is God's idea. And if we think about the context, about why God resolved to create man to begin with, Adam to begin with, we find the answer in Genesis one twenty six. if you want to look there. Genesis one twenty six, where God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And so I think the key to the answer rests in that statement, make man in our image. Make man as a form or a display of himself. To show himself, to reveal himself. And as his representative agent in the created world, which I think then brings us to another question, right? Well, who is God? What about God is Adam meant to project? What about who God is that that Adam is meant to image, meant to display, meant to represent in the world? And so let's think about, I mean, there's so many things we could say about God. Let's just focus on a few. I think one is God is personal. We see that. He's Father, He's Son, He's Holy Spirit. They're of equal substance, yet they're distinct. But then secondly, God is eternally other-oriented. We see that across all the pages of the Scripture. He's personal, and He's actually other-oriented. He cares about other. He loves other. That part of God being Trinity means that from eternity past... He is love, that the Father loves the Son, that the Son loves the Father, that the Spirit serves and honors the Son and the Father, personal, other-oriented, looking outward, concerned for other. Those are all part of who God is. We'll just get one example from John 17, verse 5, where... This is Jesus praying. He says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you've given me is from you. And think about that. How is Christ about to be glorified? What's about to happen? The crucifixion. That's the first thing he's talking about. Now, Father, glorify me. Together with yourself. By being raised up as a payment for sin, actually sacrificing for the redemption of his bride. Actually giving his life in our place. He's going to be glorified through the resurrection on the third day. Where the Father is going to make a statement about yes, hit. In him, I am well-pleased. His sacrifice is accepted. He is holy and without blemish, and the Spirit's going to raise him. And so Jesus is saying, Father, glorify me together with you. And that glorification is in self-giving, self-sacrifice, loving other, giving self for other, honoring other, Father exalting the Son, Son honoring the Father, Spirit enacting what the Father purposed. And this is the God that Adam is created to image, to display, to showcase. And you can see where Adam can't do that alone. This is why it wasn't good for him to be alone. He had no one of his substance, of his nature, to give himself out for, to be other-oriented toward, to love, to serve. And so God's looking at him going, yeah, that's not good. He's going to be too self-preoccupied. He has no one of his nature and substance to care about but himself. No one to love and care for but himself. That's not going to show the world what I'm really like. It's not going to show the world the image that I'm wanting them to see. That isn't like me. And so sadly, most of the Christian books on marriage you'll find in the world today don't begin with that understanding of marriage. They don't begin with God's glory as the reason, but man's needs as the reason. And so they interpret that it's not good for him to be alone as, okay, Adam was lonely. He needed someone to keep him occupied. He needed someone to give him sex, someone to do his laundry, someone to cook for him, someone to in some sort of man-centered need rather than god-centered purpose which brings to that third point that what god's wanting us to see across the storyline of scripture as he's created marriage and given marriage is that there's god-centered purpose behind it and this doesn't at all mean that there isn't blessing to people or that it isn't sort of our gift to enjoy we'll get to that it really is but rather that marriage doesn't exist to revolve around and gravitate around human desire. But that God's glory is ultimately behind it. Especially when we look back on Genesis 2 through passages like Ephesians 5, we know that he had another great reality in mind as he creates marriage. Even unbeknownst to Adam, God the Father actually had Christ and the church in his mind. I mean, that's amazing, right? Just to think that from the first marriage, Adam and Eve, God has Christ in the church in mind. That's why Paul calls it a mystery in the Old Testament. This is a mystery. He calls it in Ephesians 5. And now it's been revealed. Well, what is it? Christ in the church. That was the mystery. In other words, when God creates Eve, brings her to Adam, invents marriage, even then he has Christ in the church in mind. It's hidden. It's a mystery. It's why now when we look back through Ephesians 5, to Genesis 2, we're meant to go, oh, that's what he was doing. That's what the ultimate purpose he had in mind. That's the thing he's sort of developing across the pages of Scripture. Because as far as Adam was concerned before Eve, there really was nothing missing, Like if you walked up to Adam in Genesis 2 and said, hey, do you feel lonely? He would look and go, huh? What's that word? What does that word mean? If you were to say, hey, what's missing? What's empty? He'd go, I don't have a clue what you're talking about. It's amazing. It's great. He had God and perfect fellowship. He had everything the Lord thought he really needed. And so God's actually seeing something that he's saying that's not good, that Adam doesn't see. Everything was wonderful to Adam. And so in other words, God wasn't responding to man-centered need and desire, but to God-centered will and purpose. That's what's developing. And he's teaching something to Adam in the process. We see that in verse 19. Look at 219. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky, and brought them to the man. And so, out of the same substance God used to make Adam out of dirt, he's going to create all these living creatures, and he's going to march them in front of Adam. And it may look like, and we may ask, oh, is this God experimenting? Is he trying to figure it out? Of course, the answer is no. Well, then who's all that for? That's for us. That's for Adam, to show him, yeah, none of these will do. So, he brings this animal. Adam names it. Yeah, that won't do. Move it along. Here's the next one move it along. Is dog man's best friend? No, he moved that one along. Brought him a Labrador retriever, adorable, cute, freshly made. And God's like, nope, this isn't going to do. And he's going to decide, I'm going to have to do a whole new thing. and I'm not going to take it out of the dirt the way I made you. I'm going to take it out of you. I'm going to take a rib from your side. I'm going to create a whole new person, but from your substance. Someone of your nature, like your being. That's what he's seeing. God will bring about a woman from the substance of Adam, and he will bring about marriage just through his gracious word. So I think the implications for this, when you think about marriage, is massive. Who can think of, just throw out, what are some of the implications of this kind of understanding of why marriage came about? Procreation? How so? Say more. species, having more of them. So, even that's a part of God being imaged and us imaging God, right? Is the, the creating part. Like, okay, you need some of your substance nature to, to create, to produce more in your image. And even children being this great, it's one of the great pictures, right? Of the two shall become one flesh. Just look at your kids. There's the two in one flesh. Like that they look like, it's. Not, usually you can't dispute it, especially once they start talking and acting. And you're like, yep, they got that from my spouse, that's for sure. <laughs> and you start seeing, okay, the two, became, yeah, so even the way God designed that to work says something about him. Yeah. I think another implication is it really keeps the word needs in perspective which means felt needs, if you've heard that phrase before, the things you feel you need have to be evaluated by the Word of God, that we're allowed to have preferences, we're allowed to have desires, there's allowed to be things in marriage that say, hey, I'd really appreciate you do it this way. It would really help me if... But then we have to be careful of not elevating that to the level of need, which is usually what we do. We'll ask as if, okay, if you don't help clean the house differently... I'm gonna die like that's how we'll feel it if you don't take care of this issue with these kids or if you don't talk to me this way or if you don't show me respect in these terms if we don't have sex at this frequency I'm gonna just dissolve into nothing we'll feel desires and preferences at that level of intensity what God is trying to help us see is yeah whenever my desires and needs to get that central, I'm misunderstanding, again, how God designed marriage. I'm taking that Ferrari and I'm about to drive it into the ocean. And I'm about to get really frustrated at why it isn't working. There can be preferences. There can be desires. There can be things that we ask for. There can be things that we appreciate. We can want the house picked up a certain way, money spent a certain way, time used a certain way. That's all fair game for discussion, but it has to be kept in perspective, because to leave socks in the middle of the bedroom floor isn't heresy, though we might speak as if it is. To leave a stack of bowls in the sink isn't adultery, but sometimes we might speak as if it is, or to chew with your mouth open isn't sacrilege, or to have a very different sense of humor or different perspective on how to interact with the kids around a certain issue, or discipline practices, or fill in the blank. All things that we're going to be different on. All things that God will make sure you married somebody who's different on. So that we would learn how to really love. So that we would learn what real priorities are. So that we would learn, oh wait, he didn't build this thing and give it to me as my personal amusement park to be a vending machine for my desires. Even you read the Exodus narrative where God's going to redeem his people out of Egypt. He's going to bring them to the wilderness. He's not even going to give them food. He's going to make sure there's no water. Like things that if you don't have it, you die. And the Lord's like, let's just put it on hold for a little while to see what's inside you, to see what comes out when you don't get it. And we might look at that and go, man, God's so mean. Or is that love? Because there are things worse than not dying. And that's the part we don't usually see. There are things worse than dying of hunger or of thirst. And so he'll just take the most basic things needed for human survival and say, even this isn't as important as you think. Not as important as you feeding on my word. Not as important as you repenting of sin and turning to me and being saved. Not as important as you being reconciled to me and trusting me and following me. And so you don't think he'll use marriage and withhold certain things you think you need in marriage to make a bigger point. That man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And that's not unkind. That's love. Because no soul in the history of the universe was ever condemned because of the sins of their spouse. It's our own sin that destroys us. It's our own pride. It's our own flesh. We're always in danger of mistaking the biggest danger, which isn't outside us. And so God will use so many circumstances, including marriage, to sort of expose what do we really need. And how many of us wake up in the morning and go, you know what I really need is forgiveness. You know what I really need is God's grace and mercy and patience. And so he'll use everything, including marriage, to reprioritize for us what real need is. I think the implications also are keeping our desires in submission. The process of lowercase d desires becoming capital D desires is always close. And it can wreck shop when lowercase d desires become capital D desires. I like to say, yeah, marriage is full of conversations about lowercase d desires. Here's something I would appreciate. Here's something that would be helpful. Or I would love it if. Or this is hard on me when you do this. It's hard on me when you don't do that. There's all those things, but those are sort of lowercase d desires. What we don't see is how those lowercase d desires become capital D desires. Where these aren't just, hey, it would be really helpful if, but no, no, as as Paul Tripp would say, those desires graduate into demands. Where no longer is that desire sort of an open-handed desire, but now we close our fist around it, and we demand it. then he would say, and then that demand sort of gets baptized as a need. That's actually an escalation from demand. When we say, okay, I need this for you, like oxygen like food and water, like t- for survival. And then that need then morphs into an expectation. Okay, I've, I've told you I need this. And you've said you love me. So it's only right for me to expect you to deliver this, whatever that is. And now that escalates into an expectation. Or I like to say premeditated resentment. These are the things we don't realize that we've decided we're going to resent them over when they don't deliver, because eventually they won't deliver. And that leads to disappointment. Desire, demand, need, expectation. Now disappointment, because you said you love me. I told you I need this. You didn't deliver. Which then leads to the final step, which is punishment, as Paul Tripp would say. Now, this person that we're married to has broken the laws of my kingdom, and they need to be trained. They need to be taught. They need to be punished. And he would say whether that's cruel, vicious, harsh words or actual physical abuse, or all the way over just to cold shoulders, which Tripp calls bloodless murder, or I don't kill you, I just act as if you're dead, and the whole range of things in the middle. And all the while, we feel it was justified. Because we feel like, yeah, real laws were broken here, but we don't realize they weren't God's laws. They were my laws. Or if they were God's laws, we took them in a personal way as if, okay, it was our place to enforce them. And so now we're not speaking redemptively. We're not sort of speaking in a way to help our husband or wife sort of be reconciled to God. And even if it's to see their sin, no, it's, it's become just stuck in the horizontal And so another massive implication of this kind of thinking is the freedom of Christ-centered motivation. What God really wants us to have in marriage is real freedom to love another person, to have desires, to request things, but those be open-handed. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, what did Jesus pray three times to the Father? What did he ask? If there's any way, Father, what? take this cup from me. What's he talking about? Well, the cup of God's wrath that he was about to drink at the cross, which if there's something to to pray not to get, that's a great prayer. If there's another way, Father, for me to not go to the cross and drink your wrath and become sin, then I would love that. But how does he close that prayer all three times? But not my will be done, but your will be done. And that's a great Model a great pattern for how to talk to God and how to talk to your spouse sometimes. You know, if there's any way, this would be great. Always knowing in your heart, but you know, not my will be done. Your will be done. Not even necessarily the spouse will, but you're surrendering that to the Lord. Lord, not my will be done. Your will be done. And then whatever comes of it, apparently is what God decided. I'd really love it if my spouse was like this. And God goes, okay, but I'm going to do it like this. And are we able to go, okay, your will be done, not my will be done? That's freedom. That's Christ-centered motivation. That's something that will actually set us up to enjoy marriage far more, and to in marriage, enjoy life much more. Because it's not that we're just saying, oh, what I want is irrelevant. We're just saying, no, what I want must be continually kept in submission to what God wants. What I desire must always be submitted to the real capital D desire. That's why when David in Psalm 27 says, Lord, one thing I've asked that I will seek, that what? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. That's a, he's not exaggerating. He means it like that is my one chief dominating desire, that I would dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That I would see him, that I would hear him, that I would have communion with him forever. And it doesn't mean David didn't have any other desires. It just means all those other desires have to be submitted to that. There's real freedom in there. And that's worth praying for. Lord, give me that kind of freedom in my marriage where I realize, yeah, this isn't a Ferrari you gave me to just drive into the ground or treat like a submarine. But a great gift for me to enjoy, but enjoy while submitted to your greater purpose." Any questions, comments, thoughts on marriage is God's idea, that whole first section? It's not good that man be alone. Yeah, and he responds and says, I will make a helper fit for him. So I was just trying to yep. gonna, I can hear the rebuttal of yep. people saying, well, you said that, you gave that illustration. If I go to Adam, yep. he's not going to say, oh, I, I don't know what a need is or help, whatever that illustration was. Yeah. So then I read that and I'm like, well. Yeah, the question is, yeah, here in Scripture it says, okay, I'll make him a helper. And so now in this context we have to go, well, what does that mean? And so what do you think it means here, helper, in the context of what we've talked about? What does it now mean for her to be your helper? Help you do what? Display God. God. Glorify God. Honor God. Serve God. Yeah, you need someone who can help you show the world what God is like. Someone who can help you display Christ in the church. Because can, can Adam display Christ in the church by himself? No, and so, so it doesn't mean there's not mutual service, there is. It doesn't mean you're not to care for each other and help each other in horizontal ways. You are, but again, it's all submitted to, that's fitting within what context in God's mind? Well, to display the glory of Christ in the church, to display that he is love. And now none of us, you're not going to get married and within a year have that figured out. Thankfully, he gives us decades to learn how, how do you do this together? How do you love? And now you see where, we'll get to it with Ephesians 5, how the love and submission now takes on a new meaning where it isn't again, okay, guys, love your wives because she really needs it. Okay, wives, submit to your husbands, respect him because he really needs it. Because, you know, guys who aren't respected just fall apart. Again, that's man-centered need talk. In this context, why does God say for husbands to love their wives? Yeah, because Christ loves us, and that's to show the world what Jesus is like. Wives, submit to your husbands. That's to the Lord. Oh, why? Because he'll be mopey and depressed if you don't? No, why? What's that meant to show? Because this is the right posture, the right heart that the church is to have toward Christ. And so, again, you see where man-centered neediness, being the reason for it all, just demeans it all. And eventually, it's just not a good enough reason. And God will make sure of that. It just won't be enough reason for you to love your wife. And so books like Love and Respect, that have gotten very popular in churches, is what gets this most wrong, where it's most deadly. Books like His Needs, Her Needs, just sets you up to completely misunderstand marriage in such a way that you will be bitter and resentful before it's over because it's selling you this perspective of what marriage is meant to deliver that God never promised, never designed, but rather, no, the motivation is, yeah, so therefore helper, back to your very short question with a very long answer, helper must mean help do that, help display what God wants to display help project what God wants projected, and with great reasons to. And that's why in Ephesians 5 he's going to say, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, not husbands, love your wives as she deserves, as you feel like it, or according to whatever sort of social contract arrangement you all have. No, it's husbands, love your wives, and the the cue is as Christ loved the church. And how's that summed up? And gave himself for her. And wives, therefore, respect, honor, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, as if he was Jesus, not as he deserves, not because he needs it, not fill in the blank, but to show the world what that relationship between Christ and the church is really meant to be like. And then marriage is God's creation. We're so far behind, it's not even funny. That's all right. And marriage is God's creation. It's a work of God, not... Man, Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew 19. Then after conceiving it in his mind, God's going to put Adam to sleep. He's going to take one of his ribs, form a woman, then bring her to him. I love that. That God's doing all this while Adam is unconscious. That's how not a work of Adam it is. Like, he's conked out. God's doing all this, and he doesn't even know what's happening. Then he just wakes up, and God... Brings him Eve, and God, in the words of Christ, join them together. They're going to become one flesh. They do have a part in it, but that ultimately, Matthew nineteen six is going to show who's behind it. Matthew nineteen three. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, "Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all?" There's some that would have taught that. She burned the toast. You're mad, you can divorce her. And Jesus answered and said, Have you not read? I love how, he, how many of the questions he answers with that statement. Haven't you read the Bible? Which they prided themselves on. That he created them from the beginning and made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And Jesus thinks from that, divorce should be unconscionable that Jesus thinks that from that statement in Genesis there's enough for everybody to realize no you don't get to because there's something that happens in marriage that God does that you don't get to break up that you don't get to tear apart verse 6 he explains it so they're no longer two but one flesh and here's the punchline: what therefore God has joined together Let no man separate. That God's going to bring Eve to Adam. The two are going to become one flesh in sexual union. And somehow in that process, God is joining them together. Somehow God is making the two one. And whatever God's doing there, Jesus is saying, you don't get to break up. Only God gets to break up. And how does God break it up? Death. That's how he does. Now, it doesn't mean there aren't grounds for divorce. We'll talk about that in a couple weeks. But the grounds for divorce are, are unrepentant sin of a certain type. And so even then, there's something that man has to do, that woman has to do, that people have to do to assault this union for the one to become two again. But what we're meant to see is, okay, there's, God's hands are in this. This is part of his work. And that truth, I think, should strengthen us in marriage. I think one reason that should strengthen us is because we see here that it's God who ultimately joins us together. It's not just our own efforts. And part of the strengthening there is because what it means is you you actually have to work to break it up. God joined it together. You have to exert energy to destroy it. Now, it may seem like it's very easy to do. You may look into the world and go, but divorce looks so easy. In one way, yes, but really as Christians know, you've got to really muzzle God for a while. You've got to go against what God is actually doing. In other words, I think there's something that can strengthen us there. So, you know, God is so for us in marriage. He's joined us together. He's so with us that if we're walking with him, we have every reason to be confident that he's going to keep us together. He's going to hold this together. You've got to walk pretty hard upstream. You've got to run pretty hard against the wind of God's spirit to actually break it up. That's why in Malachi 2, there's all these men of Israel, these leaders that were putting away their wives, the wives of their youth, and taking foreign wives as their new spouses. And, he's going to, and that's where he's going to talk about how he hates divorce. But he's going to say, but not one has done so who has a remnant of my spirit. His point being, yeah, all the guys doing this, none of them have my spirit in them. And there's a strong statement there. And so that truth can strengthen us, that the Lord is with us in a way in marriage. But also that truth should satisfy us in marriage. That is, we should know the person to whom we're married is the person to whom we should be married. Guys ask me all the time, how do you know if she's the one? Well, when you marry her, she is, that's for sure. (laughs) Because, again, it's not just about your choice and you holding it together. But if this is somebody that that the Lord has brought you to and the Lord has helped join you together, that should then satisfy you that there's nobody else they're off the market, you're off the market, there's nobody else you need to think about. There's nobody else you can go, oh, should I have? No regrets. Again, I think there's a believer marrying an unbeliever that you're meant to go, God explicitly said not to do that. Now, you're still married to them, and God has other passages on, you don't get to leave them. But yet when a lover of Christ and another lover of Christ come together in marriage and the two become one flesh and the Lord joins them together, now you you can be satisfied in that, that this is who you're to be with. This is who you're to enjoy. This is who you're to love and serve. Marriage may be hard, but it's good. It may be painful, but it's God's. And so you can be satisfied in the marriage that God has given you. Just as you can be satisfied in everything else that God gives. All of creation he gives to enjoy. But that doesn't mean that all of creation always cooperates. I thought about that sitting out there at the football game yesterday when it was 148 degrees. To sit there and go, but this is God's creation. This is a good gift. And sometimes it's hot. But then it's seeing behind the temperature to, okay, but there's goodness in it that God is giving, that we're meant to be satisfied. Again, back to the Exodus narrative, God's got them out in the wilderness for 40 years and there's food and there's water. Then in Deuteronomy 8, when it's all over, he says, okay, you shall remember the way the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years. And I think what he means is with fondness. Remember how good I've been to you. Remember how I've taken care of you. Remember how... And so no matter how uncomfortable the circumstances can be at times, God thinks there's always great joy and satisfaction and delight to be had within it all. We just have to get past our personal temporary obsession with our comforts, with getting what we want, with having our flesh pleased. Because behind all that, God is actually sanctifying us in a way where there's real joy that comes from his spirit. Yeah, Proverbs 5, 18, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth as a loving hind and a graceful doe. Let her breasts satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. You read the Song of Solomon and that's also the kind of language you get. Do you realize that's a command? Be exhilarated. Always with her love. It's certainly a statement of fact, you should be. But it's also something God says, no, you, you, you should be exhilarated. Which means some of us as husbands and wives you still have to go, okay, I, I need to pray more for God to stir in me and grant in me the kind of joy, the kinds of satisfaction that he thinks I ought to be having. And if we step back and look at it, and especially let men or women around us who know us sort of peel back some of the layers, we'll see, okay, what are all the things that I've actually attached joy to in my marriage? What are the actual things that I've placed conditions on, okay, I'll be exhilarated when he or she fill in the blank. I'll be joyful in this marriage when they, and then you fill in the blank. Notice here, he gives no conditions in Proverbs 5. No rejoice in her. Be exhilarated in her. Be satisfied in her. Thank God for, you know, that you found a good thing. And wives and their husbands. So I think we have to step back and go, okay, the Lord must be thinking on a plane that this world doesn't think on. Because all the joy I tend to feel is based on their performance. All the happiness I tend to experience is based on, and you just fill in the blank which is exactly what God is trying to sanctify in us, strip away from us, is that very kind of approach to all of life. I will be joyful when? And then there's all these earthly horizontal conditions. And he say, no, no, I, I want you to realize your joy is in something else entirely. And there's a way for you to enjoy the gifts I give you that aren't based on the performance of the gifts according to your flesh. The truth also should sober us in marriage. The Lord is actually involved in the formation of our marriages. The Lord actually exerts energy bringing our marriages into being. That means it's not a small thing. Angels witness it. The church usually witnesses it. And so in marriage, we're, we're not given a worthless thing to be used up and thrown away, but something precious something priceless, something from God. And we'll talk about the covenant of marriage in more detail in a couple sessions. But that's a piece that's meant to sober us in marriage, that this is actually a covenant, not just a social agreement. There's actually something that we entered into as husband and wife in the very presence of God, that God made us one, that people witnessed it, that Christ in the church is... And the display of Christ in the church is part of what's at stake. But also point C, marriage is God's gift. Adam had done nothing to earn marriage. All he did is receive it when he received his wife. Proverbs 18, 22, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Undeserved, unmerited kindness from God is what the gift is. Even after receiving Eve, here's what Adam declared in Genesis 2.23, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And in your Bibles, it should be in poetic form. And so Adam goes poetic when he receives this gift. He rejoices. So we see there's, there's praise in this. There's thanksgiving in this. There's artistic expression as Adam receives this gift. There's appreciation in his words. And you know he was surprised, right? Like he did not see this coming. Like wow, this is this is woman taken out of me, but she's not me. She's not like me. And you also see in here just and this is why even the Sort of the gender wars right now of just, just, okay, you can name your gender, you can be whatever you want to be. It's actually, it's it's a theological battle because we see early on in creation, there's something in naming that is important. The one who names has authority. The one who names is claiming a particular jurisdiction over this. That's why God's giving to Adam, okay, you get to name these animals. He's going to declare, okay, this is woman. He's man. And there's something that God has given him to do there that is exercising just the authority of God in creation. And so then for us to show up and go, you know what, I think I'll just rename myself. Or I'll rename others. Let's just make the naming fluid. Well, that means, okay, so we're playing God then. We're claiming to take a particular jurisdiction, a particular authority over the creation that God didn't give. Or if He did, He didn't give it to give, be exercised that way. That's why nothing that ever happens in the world ever is sort of not related to God. People are always doing something with God all the time. So anything you see on the news, anything you see in some of these battles, always think in theological terms. Think in terms of, okay, in what way is this person trying to avoid God? or get rid of God, or subvert God, or replace God. That's always behind the scenes happening. And marriage is one of the places where that's happening. Because you know Satan hates this image of Christ in the church. You know he's certainly against it. And he's willing to do anything he can do to make that picture as ugly as possible. Any questions, comments, thoughts, before we keep going? Danny. What I can think of. Um, he has children, but I guess they're all out of wedlock. They're just. Um, I mean, some of you brothers, some of you may be able to think of a place where there's that reference. I can't think of a single place of him having a spouse. Um, again, you know, angels aren't given in marriage, and even as a fallen, mar- you know, fallen angel. So I think that's true. But yeah, no, but he has children, but they're spiritual children. Any other questions? All right. We'll close with this idea of marriage serves God's purpose. This really is sort of a conclusion to everything that we've said so far, that God didn't create and give marriage to cure Adam's loneliness or his cooking, or his cleaning, or his sexual needs, while there are many little blessings, and particular, graces for earthly life that come from marriage, things we're meant to enjoy, we have to realize that they don't represent the ultimate purpose of marriage, which is why, if you're married to a spouse who's in a car accident and a paraplegic, the thought is, oh, well, then can that person just not be satisfied in marriage to that person? of course the answer is absolutely not because the ultimate purpose isn't merely physical it's not merely circumstantial there's something deeper and more important and so Ephesians 5 if you want to turn there this where we'll close today Ephesians 5 And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. And this is one of what I call just those window passages of Scripture, that when you look in through it, it's meant to help you sort of understand the rest of what Scripture is doing with marriage. So as you go back to Genesis 2 and see, okay, when God sees it's not good for man to be alone, we have to interpret that in the light of Ephesians 5 and other passages. That what he's actually seeing is, okay, Adam's not going to be able to model and reflect and display what I need him to by himself. And so now when we think of the word helper, I need a helper, or I'm going to give him a helper suitable, we have to interpret that in the light of what's God's overall redemptive purpose. Redemptive purpose through marriage. What now is Eve helping him to do? So that now as we carry out each day in marriage, we're thinking, okay, Lord, what are you designing this to do? As you've given us this Ferrari to drive, where have you called us to go? How have you called us to use it? How are we supposed to enjoy this? So that then when conflict comes, we're interpreting that conflict and thinking through that conflict and responding to that conflict with God's redemptive purposes in mind. Then when children come, we're interpreting parenting and interacting in parenting and co-laboring in parenting with God's redemptive purposes in mind. And then as every year goes on, the hard things, the good things, the difficult things, the weighty things, the sweet things, the joyful things, that we're experiencing that joy, that peace, that delight in the light of, okay, what did God intend marriage to really be and to do? And that'll sort of set a sort of a building block, if you will, for just all the sessions that are going to come after. Because God-centered purpose, God-glorifying purpose, is the only way we're going to understand that everything else he says to us about marriage. Any final questions, thoughts, comments? We have a few minutes left before we wrap up. Yeah, Drew. Fully content in how we glorify God in the confines of marriage while also taking into account that it is the unity that's also glorified, how do we weigh those? Kind of... Okay, say it one more time. So, we have your own personal contentment in Christ. You can be content in Christ as a single, unmarried, so yes. Besides marriage, you are responsible for your own personal fulfillment and Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so if, so, some of, uh, half of what you're saying there is so even as a single person, you can be content in Christ, you can glorify God, you're a member of the body of Christ. Yes, you've given a particular calling, particular road that you're walking on, that it's still, okay, you're, you're not your own, you're bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. And so how do you do that as a single? Yeah, it's a whole different set of questions that have great answers to how do you live content, satisfied, joyful, serving the Lord, married to Christ, as long as you're in that place but then when you're married okay now it's okay we're given this added sort of responsibility to also honor and glorify christ in marriage and to display something particular about christ in the church that i believe only marriage can do and so you had to contently lovingly patiently do that but then now what do you do if you're married to someone who doesn't seem as committed to that Yeah, that they're making it harder. And so I like to use phrases like, okay, they may be making it harder on you, which in your mind is harder, but in God's mind might not be. So some of what I think this way of thinking about marriage does is it makes us reinterpret everything in the light of, okay, the Lord is doing something he thinks I need. And the thing I think is hindering, he thinks is helping. The thing I think is a problem, he thinks is an opportunity for change. And so when you really think about, it, okay, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So what that means is when she's rude to you, you're actually better positioned to show the world what Jesus is really like. When she's dishonoring of you, when she's not cooperating, you're also well positioned to show the world what Jesus is like. Because does Jesus relate to a bride who's not always cooperative? Does Jesus love a bride who hinders or who seems to resist what he's trying to do. What he's... And so I think it's a mistake to think, okay, this is only going to bear fruit if they do it the way that I think they ought to do it. And so what this does is it just humbles us, I think. Have to, we have to step back and go, okay, Lord, I actually have no idea exactly what you're doing or how you're going to use this. I just trust that you will. And here's what you've called me to be and do. Like if Jose and Goma were to step, show up at our church, um, would we think, well, that's a great marriage and, and they should be members right away? Or are we, how many of us would look and go, that's not a very good marriage? I think most of the world would go, yeah, that's not a good marriage. But what if you would ask God that question? Is that a good marriage? I think he would go, yeah. And we have to go, well, why? Well, it tells the world the story I want it to tell. It serves the purpose for which I intended it. If you know the story of Hosea and Gomer, this is God's prophet that God calls to marry Gomer, who's either already unfaithful in some ways or is gonna be. And so you're gonna marry her. Okay, she's gonna run away with another guy, probably have a child of that other union. And God's gonna say, okay, then restore her, brings her back, she's gonna do it again. For sure have a child of that adultery. And God's going to say, oh, Hosea, okay, I want you to go and bring her back and love her as you did before and restore her. And then God's going to spend the rest of the book of Hosea saying how that's a picture of his relationship to Israel, how he's Hosea and Israel is Gomer. And so even, and, but this is a true prophet of God. So imagine you're God's prophet and God's like, yeah, go marry her and this is what's going to happen. And everything in you goes, that doesn't sound like a good idea. That doesn't sound like that, but again, it shows, not that that's the marriage we all aspire to have, but it shows that God decides, and we have to be slower to judge what a good marriage is. I mean, how often do we just fall into that kind of language? Oh, they have a great marriage. You always want to go, how do you know? Well, just look at how they treat you. But then we'll look at another couple, and we'll go, oh, that's not a very good marriage. Well, how do we know that? Because we don't know the purpose for which God's intending it. We don't know the story he's trying to tell. We don't know what it's going to be in a year, in two years, in five years, in ten years. So I think some of what this does is it has to make us slow down and be much more humble when it comes to judging marriage or quality of marriage or what it's supposed to do. It doesn't mean there aren't truths and principles and what's good and better and right. No, it does. It just means, okay, this is actually not about me. And as I'm in this marriage, and I think I'm crushing it for Jesus, and my spouse is just not, that I'm meant to, when I feel that, I'm meant to go, okay, wait a minute, that's arrogant. That's proud. I don't actually know that I'm crushing it at all, number one. I'm not sure they aren't. I'm not exactly sure how to judge all that. And I probably need to defer to God on where this is going and what he's going to do. And I think that's part of why it's so important early on when we think about marriage to think about it in in God-centered terms and be much quicker to ask, okay, Lord, what are you doing? Lord, what are you trying to bring about? Lord, help me to trust you. Help me to follow you. Help me to fulfill what you've called me to be and do. Lord, grant me the faith to walk through whatever you've called us to walk through. And, And be thankful in all that and be grateful in all that and understand that, okay, God has given every marriage to tell a particular part of the story that he wants told, and we don't always get to control that. We get to ask in the middle of it how how to trust him and walk with him in it. So, yeah, great question. I'm going to pray for us. Well, Father, we do look to you as our good teacher, as our good Father, as one who gives and gives good gifts, and enables us to enjoy those gifts. I pray that you would remove from our hearts and minds any fleshly, worldly, self-absorbed conceptions of what marriage is about or for, that we would receive it for the reasons that you gave it, and live within it to serve the purposes that you designed it for, so that we would be thankful and humble and grateful and faithful, and loving, that we would depend on you and walk in the Spirit, that we would be a church who seeks to exalt Jesus in everything. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.